hope everybody's doing well this morning. I'd like to welcome you to the last Sunday of our series in early church history. Today we're going to look at some of the foundational teachers of the second, third century. Um, before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do just want to give you thanks for the fact that you have uh, given us throughout church history uh, gifted men um, who have helped to steer the course of church history through their teachings and their writings, help protect the church from error. Lord, we pray that you would continue to, to rise up faithful uh, people who stand for truth, who have discernment to uh, detect error, and uh, Lord, we even just lift up our own elders and just pray that you would continue to guide them and give them wisdom as they lead this church. Father, we thank you for this time and just pray that you would be honored in, in what we talk about this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, <clears throat> again, we're in the last week of our series in early church history, um, and we've covered... I, want, I was about to say we've covered a lot of ground, but really we haven't. Uh, we're still in the second, third centuries, which primarily is what we were focused on this time. And uh, just in case you didn't notice, I'm not doing a chronological approach. I keep kind of cycling back and looking at different issues, uh, and I'll do the same thing today. Uh, so we'll look at, you know, obviously a, a span of time through the second and third centuries. When we look at the early church fathers, which we're going to be doing today, it is often hard to, um, to assess them. And we're, as you're going to see this morning, there's some major issues with some of the church fathers and what they thought, what they taught. Um, but I think it's important to remember also the context in which they're writing and, and doing the thinking. Again, there's some major issues which we'll look at. Uh, but just keep in mind uh, that you know, when we're assessing these men, you keep in mind the context in which they're writing and thinking. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, I want to read a couple of verses here. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1, but uh, the key passage that I wanted to just read was verse 11 and 12. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might Fill all things. And then the key passage. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, men 
in the second and third centuries who were shepherds and teachers, thinkers, uh, and a lot of their writing had an impact on church history um, since their time. I want to give you a little bit of context just to kind of refresh your memory on what we've been looking at. During the uh, early decades of the church, uh, most of what the church fathers, and I'm even including the biblical writers in this sense, most of what they wrote were written, was written for a specific purpose. In other words, there was an issue they were writing uh, to clear up, or there was a problem they were hoping to clear up. Uh, you think of Paul's epistles. Uh, you can also look at some of the early church fathers like Ignatius and Clement of Rome. However, toward the end of the second century, <clears throat> this is really what we're going to be looking at, you have uh, a, more <clears throat> sorry, a more substantial writing of the church fathers, really in response to the heresies. So you have the heresies, especially with Gnosticism. Remember, we looked at Gnosticism and Marcionism last week. But you had these, these heresies, and they weren't just uh, heretical on one point. They were complete systems of thought. And they were well-developed, and they were becoming more and more developed, especially with Gnosticism. And so the church fathers, uh, in response to that, started writing more comprehensive uh, statements of doctrine, where they were really elaborating the teachings of the church. And so what we're going to see is more comprehensive systems of thought in the writings that we're going to look at. Uh, Gonzalez writes this, he says, uh, that the heresies gave rise to the first writings in which one can find a fairly complete exposition of the Christian truth. So four men we're going to look at this morning. Um, the first one is Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, Irenaeus was a native of Asia Minor, and you'll, you're going to start, I'm going to mention people that we've already talked about, uh, but he uh, lived in the, from 130. And I, pretty much all of these are circa. I don't think there was an accurate date or a way of dating their lives. So any, all of the dates I have in here are, are estimations. Irenaeus was born in around 130. Again, he grew, lived in Smyrna, which is in Asia Minor. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Y'all will remember Polycarp. Uh, we talked about him when we were talking about the martyrs and, um, and, and persecutions. Uh, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and so that's going to become very important uh, with Irenaeus. Irenaeus ended up moving to Lyon, so if you, if you, uh, it might be helpful for you to look at your maps again. If you'll go back to, if you're interested. In my Bible, the second to the last map, you have the spread of Christianity in the first two centuries. So Asia Minor is over, you know, at least on this map, I'm not sure what yours has. You have Galatia, you have Antioch, that's that area, that region's Asia Minor. At uh, some point, um, Irenaeus ends up moving to Gaul. Uh, in particular, the city of Lyon, the leading city of Gaul at that point. Gaul is basically modern-day France. Uh, he moved there. He was a presbyter in the church. Uh, at, at some point, the bishop of the church was martyred. 
And Irenaeus had such a reputation there that he was elected the bishop of the church. And he served as bishop until his death in 202. Irenaeus was really a peacemaker, um, especially when it came to minor issues in the church. Uh, There's a story of the, at this time when he's bishop of the church in Lyon, he is involved in, a, in sort of a debate on when Easter should take place, uh, which was apparently a major debate in the early church. Uh, the Bishop of Rome held to um, a position on this, and honestly, I don't know all the details. I wish I could give you all the details of this, but uh, the point of this is that uh, I don't want to point out the character of Irenaeus. Um, so the Bishop of Rome held to a pretty strong position on when Easter should be celebrated and, in fact, wanted to excommunicate members in his own church who disagreed with him. Um, Irenaeus disagreed with him and ended up writing him a letter appealing to him not to excommunicate, that the issue was not one that he needed to excommunicate over. And so, uh, in a lot of ways, Irenaeus was a peacemaker in the early church. He sought to, brought, to bring unity to the church. Above all, Irenaeus was a pastor. He was not a philosopher. Uh, He saw himself, well, he saw God. His concept of God was that God was the great shepherd. And so Irenaeus really saw himself as a shepherd of the people. And so we'll kind of see the difference between him and the other uh, men that we'll talk about later because he really stands out. He's really fundamental. He's earlier than the other three that we're going to look at, and the other three really kind of use his writings and his thought to springboard into their own uh, teachings. By the way, I forgot to mention this up front. It's very obvious from your notes that I'm going to talk about their life, their teaching, and then their contributions to the church or their significance. So now I'm moving into uh, the teaching of Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus was not particularly interested in philosophical speculation, uh, nor did he want to delve into mysteries uh, hitherto unsolved. I mean, Irenaeus, again, he saw himself as a pastor. He just wanted to faithfully shepherd the flock of God. Um, He wrote several things. All of these men are known for their writings and what they contributed to the, the thinking of the time. Um, but one of the things that he wrote was a demonstration of apostolic preaching. And this is really um, not the first, uh, it's not really a systematic theology, but it is uh, his teaching on Christian doctrine. And then he also wrote against heresies. All of these men that we're going to look at today were heavily involved in refuting heresy. He writes specifically uh, a book called Against Heresies, in which he battles the ideas of Gnosticism, which we looked at last week. Really, there's this book, uh, and I'm going to spend some time on this because of some of the significance that that he has for the church we see in this book. Uh, This book, Against Heresies, is is broken down into five chapters, or what, what I think he would probably call books. In the first book, he lays out the beliefs of Gnosticism, and then in the second one, he points out the logical inconsistencies of Gnosticism, and then in the third one, the third book, he lays out what the apostles taught, and we're going to come back to some of these. The fourth one, he lays out what Christ taught, and then the fifth book, he deals with eschatology. 
And so, again, he's writing mainly against Gnosticism. Uh, His significance really is in understanding what the Gnostics taught because he took time to lay out their teachings. I mentioned last week that a lot of the Gnostic writings uh, disappeared and were rediscovered much later, Uh, but we have a lot of uh, what we knew, especially prior to, I think, 1970s was when a lot of the Gnostic writings were discovered, rediscovered. Um, he gave us a lot of information about what the Gnostics taught. He also helps to define the orthodox view of Christianity. Um, Again, as a pastor, he's looking at how do I shepherd the flock of God. Um, Gonzalez writes this about him. He said his goal in writing these things is to expound the faith that he had received from, from his teachers without, and this is important, without adorning it with his own speculations. Therefore, the writings of Arrhenius are an excellent witness to the faith of the church toward the end of the second century. Arrhenius, again, I want to emphasize because we're about to leave Arrhenius and go to guys who are uh, really given to speculation. He did not want to speculate about things. He really wanted just to lay out the foundations of the faith. In book three of Against Heresies, he argues Again, I'm talking about his significance. He argues for apostolic succession, which we spent time talking a little bit last week. I'll, I'll, I'm going to hit on it again because it's so important in the thought of these men. Um, he uses himself as an example. Uh, so apostolic succession, again, you have to keep in mind he's writing against the Gnostics. The Gnostics claimed also, Marcion claimed that Uh, There was truth. The truth was in Jesus' teachings, uh, but the Gnostics claimed they had secret knowledge of those teachings. And so to combat this, the early church fathers had the idea of apostolic succession, which we see in Irenaeus. And basically the idea is this, and I'm I'm repeating last week, for those of you who were here, sorry, uh, that the that what Jesus taught, he taught to his disciples or the apostles, and that if Jesus had a secret teaching, those apostles would have handed it down to the church leaders that they entrusted the church to who would have handed that down. And so there's this idea of apostolic succession through the teaching of the leaders of the church. And so that's sort of the argument that he makes. So he uses himself Uh, Again, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so he uses himself as an example of apostolic succession. If if John had secret knowledge, he would have passed it on to Polycarp, who would have passed it to him. He also looks to and really emphasizes the church at Rome. Um, He sees Rome as the primary church. for a lot of different reasons, but uh, primarily because you have Peter there and you have Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, both were martyred in Rome, and so that gives great credibility to the Church of Rome. Also, the Church in Rome was central, and so it played a key role in the Church at this point, and so he really sees the Church at Rome as preeminent. Um, you can kind of see how you connect that with his emphasis on the Church at Rome and the emphasis on apostolic succession, and you can kind of see where the Catholic Church picks up on this and moves forward in the Middle Ages. Uh, That, however, is not Irenaeus' concern. Um, His concern was combating heresy and what was the true teaching. Um, 
Yeah, so basically, if Gnosticism or, or any other teaching for that matter, if it doesn't line up with what the church taught, especially the church in Rome, then it's not true. He also, in connection with this, develops the idea of regula fide, or the rule of faith. This is similar to apostolic succession, but it, it's, a, its focus is different than just the succession. It is focused on the teaching, or the true teaching of the church. And so, this is going to be, this idea you're going to see come up again and again, especially as we move through these church fathers. They all kind of pick up on apostolic succession and the rule of faith and, and develop those you can think of it more like a doctrinal statement um, uh, or a summary of the church's teachings. So this rule of faith was the core teachings of the church that had been passed down through the apostolic succession. And so this was what the church teaches. This is what it taught. And so this is what you have to, uh, this is what heresies were measured up against. Um, he also, um, he also unifies uh, in, in a systematic way the Old and New Testaments, pointing to uh, Christ as the central person throughout the Bible. Um, again, this is in the face of Marcionism who rejected the Old Testament, which we talked about that last week. Okay, so that is Irenaeus. Now let's go to Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Clement of Alexandria was born to pagan parents, uh, but he was converted to Christianity. He traveled around trying to find a teacher who could teach him the truths of the Christian faith. He ended up landing in Alexandria, uh, and after some time became the main teacher in Alexandria. Alexandria was a key city, especially for um, when you think about the Greek philosophers. This was Alexandria was a key intellectual city uh, during this time, and so it's important that he was there. Uh, it's important for what we're about to say that he was there. Uh, Alexandria, uh, again, had a museum, had a library, and scholars met at Alexandria to discuss the latest ideas. So it was sort of like a, you think of it as a university campus where all of the leading scholars would go for a conference. So this is where he lived. Uh, Gonzalez again points out that he was not a pastor like Irenaeus, but rather a thinker and a searcher. And his goal was not so much to expound the traditional faith of the church, although he did hold that faith, as to help those in quest of deeper truth and to convince pagan intellectuals that Christianity was not the absurd superstition that some claimed it was. So again, Clement's focus is a little bit different. He's not a pastor, he's a philosopher. And his goal is to reach philosophers or uh, people in, in the academia. Um, what about his teaching? The main thing that Clement, uh, I think, is important for is his appropriation of the pagan philosophers. And I want to go back to... Um, uh, Justin Martyr. Y'all remember when we talked about Justin Martyr, and I kind of alluded to the fact that he had this idea of the Logos, and Justin Martyr saw that, that the philosophers could come really close to truth because of the Logos, the idea of the Logos, um, which was basically a, an underlying reason that uh, that's undergirds every truth there is, and so uh, there's some common points of contact between the Greek philosophers and Christianity, 
and Justin used that. Uh, well, Clement takes that even further. He writes uh, in his uh, exhortation to the pagans, he says, I seek to know God and not only the works of God. Who will aid me in my quest? How then, O Plato, is one to seek after God? You might think, um, you might think of the phrase, all truth is God's truth. His purpose was to point pagan readers uh, to the truth of Christianity. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. That was Justin's point. Justin was trying to point pagan readers to the truth of Christianity. Clement tries to point Christian readers to the truth in paganism. So that's where Clement takes it a step further. Clement is now saying, okay, listen, Christians, there's something valuable in the Greek philosophers that we can learn from them. Uh, again, I'm going to quote Gonzalez here because he's helpful. He says, according to him, uh, or Clement, philosophy was given to the Greeks just as the law was given to the Jews. Both have the purpose of leading to the ultimate truth now revealed in Christ. The classical philosophers were to the Greeks what the prophets were to the Hebrews. With the Jews, God has established the covenant of the law, and with the Greeks, that of philosophy. So you can kind of see Clement's thinking. So how does one bridge the gap between Plato and the Bible? Obviously, there, there's, um, there, there's a big gap there. <laughs> so how does Clement bridge this gap? Um, well, for Clement, the key was allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. And so uh, he's picking up, allegorical interpretation was very common in Greek thought and culture, and he picks up on this, and he finds Platonic ideas in the Bible through allegorical interpretation. What is the significance of Clement? Again, I've kind of alluded to this, where uh, Justin used the idea of the Logos to show pagans the truth of Christianity. Uh, Clement uses the same approach to show Christians the truth of the pagan philosophers. Uh, Justin was primarily a, an apologist. Uh, Clement is primarily a theologian. Um, and he, his main significance, uh, so he became the teacher at this school in Alexandria. And he's going to have a famous student that we're going to look at last, and that is Origen. Let's look at Tertullian of Carthage. Uh, Tertullian seemed like a really interesting guy. Um, he was converted to Christianity when he was about 40 years old. Uh, at that time, he was living in Rome. There is debate over whether he was a lawyer before he came to Christ. Whatever the case, he, uh, most people recognize that he had a legal mind, so he was either trained in rhetoric or trained as a lawyer. And when he came, became a Christian, he brought that mindset and that, that sort of legal mind influenced a lot of his uh, teaching and writing. He was, uh, most people described him as relentless in his search for truth. This is the kind of guy you don't want to get into a debate with uh, because he's not going to drop <laughs> the issue. He's going to continue to debate uh, despite himself. He was precise. Uh, he, his logic was penetrating um, and, and very, um, 
uh, held a very high standard of morality, uh, just, you know, was one of those guys that just thought real clearly, but also dogmatically, I guess. But he contributes a lot of good things. I'm not trying to make him sound like a bad guy. Uh, you may remember that we quoted him when we were talking about Trajan's edict uh, way back when we were talking about persecution. He's the one that really criticized the edict as an unjust ruling. That you, you remember, uh, basically Trajan came out and said, what do we do with the Christians? Trajan's response was, we don't seek them out, but if they're accused, then they need to be punished. And Tertullian is the one who basically says that's nonsense. Uh, you know, he, uh, he basically calls it illogical. So his teaching, uh, he wrote uh, a, a treatise or a book called On Baptism, and it is an important source for our understanding of early baptism, um, and it's important because of the ideas that he writes about in On Baptism are, are carried into the Middle Ages. Again, I don't know that he uh, was convinced I don't know that he was teaching what the Middle Ages uh, brought it to, but it, certainly they took his ideas. He makes a strong link between baptism and salvation, um, almost to the point of baptismal regeneration, but he never, he never actually says that. Uh, he sees two planks in salvation. One is baptism, one is repentance. And Baptism cleanses you of all the sins you commit before salvation. But then the question is, is what happens to sins after you become a Christian? And that's where repentance comes in. He really kind of lays out a, an idea, develops the idea of repentance. And he says there's three elements. Uh, one is contrition, that if you're going to be repentant, you need to really be sorry for your sin. The second one is confession, uh, that you confess your sin, and he even uh, writes that you need to confess it to another believer. Again, you're going to see the Middle Ages, right, uh, as the Catholic Church picks up on some of this. And then lastly, he says that true repentance has satisfaction. So the three elements of repentance are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And by satisfaction, he means basically deeds that you do to show you're repentant. What doctrine do y'all think we get from that? Penance, right? Or not, not that we get. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, this, that, this is sort of the first seed of the doctrine of penance that the Middle Ages has, uh, the Catholic Church has, uh, or develops in the Middle Ages. So he also writes a, another important a treatise called Against Heresies. Uh, no, he writes a treatise against heresies called Prescription Against the Heretics. And in this, he argues that heretics, again, this is his legal mind. He's using a legal argument that was common during this time. Um, and he says that, that heretics have no claim, no legal claim to the Bible because they are latecomers. Uh, who seek to lay claim to what belongs to the church. In other words, uh, in this he argues that heretics have no right to use Scripture because it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the church. He appeals also in this to apostolic succession. Uh, again, he's building on Irenaeus' uh, teachings of the time. Uh, he 
points to Rome and, and says there's an uninterrupted line of bishops. Uh, he also points to Antioch. Um, he argues that all of the apostolic churches agree in their interpretation on Scripture, so there is a consensus. Again, the rule of faith, there is this idea that the church has, a, of the major doctrinal issues, the church has a consensus, i.e. the rule of faith, and that heresies do not line up with that, therefore they're false. You can kind of see the idea of tradition starting to develop, where church tradition is, is not, I don't think it's true for these men, but you're going to see the idea of tradition where it becomes as authoritative as Scripture, or this rule of faith becoming as authoritative as Scripture. But I don't think that's their point here. I think they're, again, just, just arguing against Gnosticism. Um, Okay, what is his significance? He is significant because he writes and he is uh, creative in the way that he writes and he coins a lot of phrases as he thinks about things. Uh, he is coin, really coins the word in Latin uh, for Trinity to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which will be picked up in the next century, but he's the first one in Latin to kind of use that term, and, and, and he's the one that most of the church fathers look to in the, in the fourth century. Uh, he even proposes the formula for the Trinity and for the divinity and humanity of Christ uh, that will be used in the fourth century. He proposes in against praxis. So he writes against praxis. Praxis was a modalist and uh, just to repeat that, I talked about that last week. Uh, modalism teaches that there is one God and, and the three persons of the Trinity aren't really distinct persons. They're just modes of God. So God is acting as the Son or he's acting as the Holy Spirit. We get uh, modalism. So he writes uh, against praxis and he uses the formula for the Trinity, one substance and three persons, which will be key to our understanding of the Trinity. He distinguishes uh, the three persons of the Trinity, but says they're uh, of one substance. He also argues that Christ is both divine and human, using the formula one person and two natures. Um, so again, he's, he's very key to the orthodox view of the Trinity and to the person of Christ that would be developed later. He had a... Uh, he strongly believed that once someone has found the truth of Christianity, they should abandon any further search for truth. Um, so who does this put him uh, uh, up against? Who is Tertullian going to be arguing against here? That once you find the truth of Christianity, you don't need to search for truth. Yeah. Clement, yeah, Clement, and, and for that matter, Justin, although Justin probably wouldn't say the same thing Clement does. So he had two, um, there were two main streams of thought during this time about um, how Christianity should handle pagan culture, which was a big issue in the church. I mean, there were things like, should, you, uh, should Christians be in the military? Should Christians participate in government? Should Christians participate in any of the social activities um, and this was a big issue, but really what, what Clement and Tertullian are arguing about is how should the Christian or what should the Christian do with the Greek philosophers? 
all of Greek culture at this point, in Roman culture, was deeply steeped and embedded in the Greek philosophy. So you had two kind of main streams of thought. You had Justin and Clement who appropriated the philosophers, although they did it for different reasons. Tertullian rejected any notion that, they had any, that the Greek philosophers had any value for, for the Christian. And so he rejected using the Greek philosophers for anything. And he, he's the one that's famous for saying, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Um, so once you find Christian truth, Tertullian had no place for the Greek philosophers. Uh, part of this was because of his dealing with heresies. Uh, Tertullian believed that a lot of the heresies that were uh, showing up in the church were a result of uh, appropriating the Greek philosophers. And so, um, yeah, he, he rejected that. Um, he's an interesting uh, guy because he um, ends up joining the... Uh, the Montanist movement at, toward the end of his life. Um, the Montanist movement was basically a movement they believed that they were the recipients of uh, the, the beginning of the last times. And so it was this outpouring of the Spirit. They prophesied. Um, and so you had this, this idea that the last days had been uh, initiated with this group. And the church really rejected that. Um, they also, the, their leader um, was known for prophesying, and they had prophets. Uh, you can kind of think of uh, sort of a charismatic movement. The church uh, rejected it. Um, one of the things that, that most people think was appealing to Tertullian was they were morally very rigorous. And a lot of people believe that that was very appealing to Tertullian. Uh, and eventually, he became disillusioned with the Montanist movement and and started his own movement. Um, but that's Tertullian, significant person for a lot of reasons. And let's get to origin. Um, as I mentioned before, Origen is a disciple of Clement. Uh, Origen grew up with Christian parents. And uh, even there's a story of when he was a boy, his, his father was arrested and was about to be martyred, and they were taking him to prison Origen wanted badly to go to prison with his dad and be martyred. Um, and so his, his mom tried to persuade him not to, uh, and at one point even resorted to hiding his clothes so he couldn't leave the house. <laughs> Which I'm not sure if you're going to be martyred, why wow, that's a big deal. But uh, he writes a letter to his dad telling his dad to remain firm, and his dad is eventually martyred. While in his teens, the Bishop of Alexandria recognized his giftedness um, and entrusted him the task of training candidates for baptism. And so even as a teenager, uh, Origen, uh, his, his abilities were recognized in the church, and he was given um, a lot of responsibility. Uh, he obviously was a brilliant and gifted thinker. Um, he soon became famous for his insight uh, and his teaching and eventually became and eventually started his own school in which he taught Christianity. Origen was eventually tortured to death. Uh, well, not immediately. He was tortured and then he died later uh, during the persecution of Decius. Okay, let's get to his teaching. He's very similar to Clement's. Um, 
in many ways, he attempted to relate the Christian faith to Platonism. And again, you have both Clement of Alexandria and Origen growing up in Alexandria, heavily influenced by Greek thought. Um, He is clear, it seems, that Christian doctrine should never be abandoned in favor of the teaching of the philosophers. Uh, And it seems as though he did hold to uh, most of the uh, fundamental tenets of Christianity. However, once you get beyond those basic tenets of Christianity, he feels the freedom to speculate uh, about theology and about teaching. And so he had some interesting ideas. Um, one of the things that he speculated about was he, be, he thought that the soul existed before the birth of the person, so all human souls pre-existed. Uh, Timothy Barnes, an English historian, writes that Origen was both a speculative theologian of unparalleled boldness and imagination and a profound interpreter of Scripture. Really, those are the two things he's remembered for. Uh, his interpretation of Scripture uh, and his uh, speculative theology. Um, significance. Uh, I found one historian, and I thought this was good, compared him to the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, there was a little girl. It goes like this. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very good indeed. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Uh, Clement, when he was good, he was very good. (laughs) And when he was bad, he was horrid. Uh, I'm sorry, I said Clement. I meant Origen. Origen was a, a brilliant Christian scholar. He was a prolific writer, Um, He wrote books on apologetics, one of them against Celsus, we've talked about throughout this six weeks, uh, really stands out as one of the great apologies of the early church. He wrote commentaries on many of the books of the Bible, uh, close to 300 books of commentary. He wrote 13 books on Genesis, just to give you a sampling, Uh, 36 books on Isaiah, 25 on the Minor Prophets, 35 on Psalms. He wrote pretty much commentaries on on both Old and New Testament. He also uh, compiled a hexapla, a book called Hexapla. And this was the first um, really interlinear uh, form of the Bible. So he takes the Greek text and then he puts a, I'm sorry, he takes the Hebrew text And then he takes a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew next to it, and then he puts four different Greek translations so that uh, when you're looking at the Hebrew text, you can see the Greek translations. Pretty amazing for this time for uh, someone to do this. He wrote what's considered to be the first systematic theology. It's called On First Principles, and this is really the first time anyone has done a systematic consideration of the biblical teachings on the Holy Spirit. Um, And he kind of goes through and and traces uh, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And so he's key as far as uh, his, this writing in particular is key for the Trinity. 
he argued again against Marcionism that the, both the Old and New Testaments are the words of God uh, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, which was key for him, which we'll look at in a little bit. Uh, and all of that is good. Uh, but now let's get to the bad. Um, he is known as the founding father of allegory in Christendom. Um, again, Clement used alleg- allegory, but Origen uh, really takes allegory to a different level. Origen believed that the true author of the Bible was the Holy Spirit. Uh, Michael Haken points out in his uh, book on the Church Fathers, the exegete must therefore, according to Origen, go beyond or beneath the letter of Scripture to discover the spiritual meaning placed in hiding there by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is thus an encoded text. Again, those aren't Origen's words. That's a contemporary scholar looking at his view. He definitely held to an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, uh, and partly because of his training in Greek philosophy. Again, allegory was very common for the Greek philosophers. They did allegory all the time. But partly, I think, too, his uh, use of allegory is because of his interactions with Celsus, the the, uh, Greek philosopher. Um. There was a common belief then that for a text that was purely historical could not be divine, according to Greek thought. And so uh, for a text to have trans-historical value, it had to be able to be interpreted allegorically if it's historical. Does that make sense? So if you're going to find value for you today in a historical text, you have to be able to, according to Greek thought, interpret it allegorically. And that was Celsus' claim. The Bible cannot be divine in origin because it cannot be allegorized. And origin, in response to that, says, yes, it can. For origin, the Bible had three levels of meaning. Uh, It had a literal meaning, a moral meaning, and a spiritual or allegorical meaning. And obviously, this would be developed in the Middle Ages to a four-level meaning. So he is seen as the father of allegorical interpretation. Um, a lot of his interpretations, again, he's, he, think of him as a, a speculative theologian. Uh, a lot of his interpretations, especially with his allegorical interpretations, were, were not even close to authorial intent of the text. Um, so, again, he's an interesting character in church history, uh, I think the the poem, the guy that compared him to that poem is right on. Uh, when he was good, he was very good, but when he was bad, he was not good. Um, so, again, you have these four key figures in early church history, and there's many others um, that could have been looked at, but I think, and one of the reasons I think Gonzalez really highlights these four people is because of the influence that they would have on the church, not only immediately, but the influence they would have in the next century and even in the centuries to come. Um, Really to understand these four guys uh, helps you understand the trajectory of the church uh, throughout the Middle Ages um, and throughout for for at least many centuries. Um, So, before I ask if there's any questions... 
Let me just say I'm not a church father expert, but are there any questions? Because Jason's here and he is. Yes, sir. Uh, well, just the fact that he produced so much. I mean, he, he did argue uh, in his Against Celsus. A lot of his apologetics were, were on target. Uh, I mean, he argued for the Orthodox faith. He just went, he, he held to, a lot, some people say he held to the Orthodox faith, but then he, spec, once he got outside of the core teachings, he really speculated a lot. Uh, but just the development of writing commentaries and the literary output that he had uh, in, in key regard to the, uh, the heresies that he was combating, he's, he's very important to the early church. Yeah. You know, I did, but I don't remember any of them. Uh, yeah, I didn't really focus on that too much, um, but I'm sure you could find that. Um, let me see if I remember any. Oh, I mean, I don't know if you classify this as allegorical. He saw two creations in the Genesis account, uh, and that's where he came up with the preexistence of the soul. Uh, he felt like he, he almost... Um, in this sense, uh, remember we talked about dualism, the material world's bad, the spirit's good, of the Gnostics, he kind of sounds almost like a Gnostic, uh, because the first creation he believed or speculated that God created the soul or the spirit, um, and then um, after the fall he created the body, um, and so the, he kind of sees a dualistic view of creation I don't know if that's allegory. I don't know if that's answering that question directly. It's just sort of a, yeah, I guess that's not really allegory because it does, he doesn't lay it out in three different ways. But, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Yes, Craig? Yes. Um, primarily, you're going to see, you, well, I say yes. None of them are as clear as what you're going to see when we get to Augustine. Um, really, it's the 4th century where I would say the doctrine of grace is really... I don't think... I, they deal with redemption, but it's not in the sense that you're going to see with Augustine because you don't really have the challenge of Arius at this point, uh, although you're, you're starting to see some of the seeds of that too in the early church, but... They're not really dealing with that issue in context of what they're dealing with. They're dealing with redemption, but it's not so much about the doctrines of grace, which we'll see in the 4th century. But I think all of them talk about, I mean, Irenaeus has a whole view of the history of redemption. Sort. I mean, he sees history because he's arguing against uh, the Gnostics and Marcionites. He sees history as... Uh, God's story, really, and he kind of lays out a doctrine of redemption or a teaching of the history of the church um, or the history of humanity, really, as, as a history of redemption. But it's not as precise as what we're going to get into later. Yeah. Um, the three levels of meaning that you're uh, referencing that verse. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> so that's really the Reformation. Uh, they, where you have, uh, where they start to, it, not only in the Reformation. So the Catholic Church develops this, the Middle Ages really, uh, they have a fourfold meaning of Scripture, um, and, and the Reformation is a, in part responds to that and, and basically wants to get back to a more historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. Um, so, yeah, that was... He, it kind of started with origin, and then it get, got developed in the Middle Ages. And I don't know if that's still common today. Does anybody know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is now, there is a group um, that I didn't really hit on here, and because they're a little bit later, uh, but they're going to, they're, not everyone is doing allegory. Um, in fact, it's just mainly those who came out of Alexandria. So there is a, a growing group of people who's going to do allegory, but not everyone in the early church did allegory. Uh, there were many people who thought that, you know, more of a historical grammatical approach to the plain sense of the author is what they were looking for. Yes? The story of Christianity, book one. There's two, two parts. Book one goes through the Reformation and then are up to the Reformation and book two from there to modern day. It's kind of the main source I'm using for the class. Okay. All right, well, let me pray. Father, thank you again just for gifted men and um, throughout church history. Lord, I pray again that you would give us uh, a discernment as we approach even issues in our own day. Uh, Father, we're confronted with a lot of... uh, similar type issues with how do we use culture, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, Lord, I pray you give us discernment, help us to be faithful. Lord, thank you for these men, um, for their contributions to church history. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would protect us from error, knowing uh, that this even should be a reminder to us all that we can be good and we can be bad um, in, in how we handle your word. And so, Lord, I pray you help us to be faithful as we use your word, not only to um, understand who you are and who we are, but, Lord, how we explain it to other people. And Lord, I just again, thank you for our elders. Pray you continue to bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.